everybody. My name's Peter McMillan, and I'm the Executive Officer at MT Shelter. We're recording today from Larrakia land in the Northern Territory, and I'd like to pay my respects to the Larrakia elders, past, present, and emerging, and to all other First Nations people across Australia and elsewhere who might be watching this podcast. This is another episode of Sharing the Couch, an opportunity for us to have conversations with people who are working in the housing and homelessness sector or the broader property and construction sector or in academia and a whole raft of other uh, circumstances where people are pioneering change and looking to provide better housing outcomes for those people across the, uh, across the spectrum really, uh, whether it be key workers, private rental, housing for purchase or those on low incomes. So today we've got a really interesting podcast. If you've missed out on previous podcasts, check out our uh, channel, our YouTube channel. Just put in NT Shelter YouTube into your favourite search engine and catch up on any previous episodes. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss out. Uh, and without further ado, we'll move on to today's podcast. And I'd like to introduce to you all Rob Pradlin. So Rob is an engineer by background. And for the past 35 years, he's lived and breathed residential property development, with 18 of those years at Fraser Properties Australia, formerly known as Australand, where he held most recently the role of general manager. Over his career, Rob has always had a keen interest in the development of all housing types, and in particular, a focus on housing affordability. His experience extends from the development of subdivisions through to medium density housing and apartments. Over his time at the company, Rob steered it into the social affordable housing space with the redevelopment of two significant Victorian government housing estates. For well over a decade, Rob has worked to change the way we build low-rise apartments. He led and managed a team at Australan that designed and constructed Australia's first five-storey lightweight timber residential apartment complex, The Green, in Parkville in Melbourne. The Green was designed to showcase the ability of the domestic construction sector to create more affordable housing options. It was, a, it was a success, achieving construction cost savings of over 20% and reducing materials related climate change impacts by 22%. Since leaving Fraser's, Rob founded Housing All Australians to represent the voice of the private sector. Rob believes that housing for all, rich and poor, is not only a fundamental human need, but it is also in the long-term interest of the economy as it will reduce social service costs. Consequently, he believes that social and affordable housing is economic infrastructure. Rob is currently the founding chair of Housing All Australians. He's on the board of the Property Industry Foundation, Summer Housing Foundation, which is focused on disability housing, the Salvation Army Housing, and the Housing Industry Association in Victoria. Rob is also a past board member of the Property Council of Australia, Residential Development Council, the UDIA, Livable Housing Australia and the Heritage Council of Victoria. A very warm welcome to you, Rob. Great to have you on the couch. Thanks for sharing with us. Um, you started off your career as an engineer with a degree in civil engineering at Monash. What was it about civil engineering, building and construction that interested you? <laughs> That goes back a while now, Peter, and thank you for the opportunity to have a bit of a chat to you this afternoon. Um, in fact, if I'm really honest, I actually wanted to be an architect firstly, but uh, when I found out it was a six-year course, I said, bugger it, I wanted something, I want to get out in the private sector. So I did engineering first, which was four years, thinking I could go back and, and do architecture later, but uh, I was pretty keen to get out in the workforce and uh, start to apply the skills that you learn. 
Excellent. And you were there for 18 years. It must have been a pretty fulfilling career you had at, at Fraser's in Australand. That's oh, a long time. It was, it was a great career and I've been, you know, in property all my life and um, I've always learned something. And in the 18 years, I've had several different roles, but the interest and the development and the diversity of um, opportunities kept me interested up until the last day. And um, the only reason sort of I sort of retired there is that I wanted to retire when I was still young to pursue what I thought was a, this fundamental human need about sheltering all our people, rich or poor, because... What I learned in the last couple of years is that whilst I was developing private sector apartments for people to buy, like most Australians, I assumed the government was looking after vulnerable people and they weren't. And the more I looked into it, I also saw this as an economic issue because the costs of the unintended human consequences are both economic as well as social. So I was curious to see what does this mean for the future of Australia and how can we shape the conversation? Because as you mentioned in your introduction, um, you know, the private sector voice is what's been missing. Mm -hmm. And I've attended many homeless conferences where the attendance was five or 600 people and they had some fantastic international speakers. And though the audience was clapping furiously in, in, in agreement. Mm -hmm. And when I sat there at the end, I said, who's here from the private sector? Mm -hmm. It was just me. Mm -hmm. and, and that got me viewing saying if we can get this caliber of of education to the private sector and waken them up we may have a different national housing discussion yeah we're going to talk a lot about that today rob i really look forward to getting your insights around that story and how that's unfolded because there's been a lot of developments over recent years but what do you think it's been that the private sector has been missing from those conversations for so long well, look, the private sector is busy doing what it does best, which is actually run its own business. And if you really take a step back, every business is there to serve society and governments put in um, frameworks that businesses have to respond to. And it's those frameworks that lead businesses to make decisions. So they've been very, very busy focusing on, on their staff and their employment and to make a profit. And some people think making a profit is bad. What I see making a profit means you're using society's resources efficiently. But getting back to your point as to why they've been sort of missing in this discussion, as one CEO put it to me just very recently about some of the things we're doing in the not-for-profit space, and part of housing all Australians is an opportunity for the private sector to contribute their products and skills for free. They said, Rob, tell me what you want, but tie it up in a bow, because I haven't got time to think. And okay. we will help you and we'll do what you want, but just tie it up, make it very easy for me. We, I think yeah. the private sector just hasn't got the bandwidth unless you educate them about what they don't know. Mm. So in general, when you talk about being led, and we'll talk about the specifics, of course, over the next half hour or so, but when you talk about being led by the private sector, and I know you've got a fairly impressive um, a range of companies already on board, and we'll I'll, I'll refer to some of those later. But what are you really looking for when people say, "Look, I'm busy. Can you tie up in a bow? I'm too busy." What are you essentially looking for from those leaders? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples: Quest Apartment Hotels and Dulux. They're both very business and both successful companies. Quest Apartment Hotel says, "Rob, every time you need furniture, come to us because we refurbish hotels across the country." And we'll give you that furniture for free because otherwise it probably goes to landfill, right? Mm -hmm. 
and, and Dulux, I spoke to the chief operating officer. He said, Rob, you want $400,000 worth of paint? I can do it. You ask me for $10,000 cash, that's a different proposition. So we're about creating value by getting organizations that have always wanted to help, but never knew how to do it through what I'm saying is corporate philanthropy in kind. Okay. And, and that's, that's why they can best contribute. And that probably explains what you've also said previously about the value of relationships. Because I guess because you've been in the property sector, you have those relationships with people at Dulux who can pick up the phone and say, or Quest and say, look, what can we do together on this? Well, it's, it's amazing. And the economic study, which we're going to get to, is all built upon relationships. And I've really sat back now that we've finished it, and we'll talk about it later. And I've got to say, if we had to start from scratch not knowing any of the, any of the major players, it'd be very difficult to get the participation. But because there is a relationship built up over a period of time, because they understand your values and your purpose, mm. when you bring the CEO of an ISPT or a CBUS property, they'll pick up the phone. They'll say, Rob, we agree with what you're trying to do. We'll support you. And, and that's how these things are started. Once they are started and then we're marketing what we're doing um, in a very purposeful way, other corporates approach us and say, can we be part of this leadership team because everyone wants to help they just mm. never know how to do it peter i think it's a, it's a, it is a different proposition a different way of working isn't it that I, I know that a lot of charities out there are, do, are doing good work in terms of what they do for their members and their clients but they don't necessarily have those relationships like that at all with the corporate world and so there is a, a case isn't there i think for someone who's passionate and has those connections you talk also about um trust and collaboration in that in that sphere as well so yeah. what would you have to say in, in terms of that i guess i oh, look one thing that i've realized after listening and i think the not-for-profits are doing a fantastic job but the language they talk is very different to the private sector and you can say one thing and it, it takes the 180 degree view depending whether you're not-for-profit or whether you're a private sector person so we're trying to be the conduit for value-aligned private sector organisations because the language is very, very different. And, and we're unashamedly very clear and we're very much focused on private sector only because we're, we're very clear we don't want mission drift, which is we're a voice of the private sector. I think every private sector organisation, because they're made up of human beings, get the shelter issue and we give them the excuse to get involved. Absolutely. And probably, well, as we've talked about a few times now, we are going to come to the substantial work around um, the Give Me Shelter project that you've just recently released. Before we get there, just in, in, as a continuation of what you've just mentioned, can you talk about those, um, I guess, those pop-up shelters, the work you've done with around that, what they call that meanwhile accommodation, uh, such as Lake House in South Melbourne. How did that what is that? How did it? How does it work? How did it come about? What's been your reaction in that space? Well, I'll tell you the little story. Um, it came about from a cup of coffee with my daughter in De Grave Street, which is opposite Flinders Street Station. And a couple of days before, there was a grand news article in the Grand Hall that would been empty for ten years, um, and below that, people were sleeping rough. And this um, this homeless guy came up and asked us for some change for that to get a bed for that night. So we gave him some some coins. And it started a conversation with my daughter. And I said, you know, the new story about the Grand Hall being empty for 10 years and look what's sleeping below it. I wonder how many buildings in Melbourne are empty. 
So I started working with Launch Housing, who's a, it's a Melbourne um, traditional support service and City of Melbourne to try and find an empty office building during winter just to take people out of the cold. And after a month or so, I got a phone call from City of Melbourne saying, Rob, the ABC News has heard about the idea and they like the idea. They want to do a story on it. And I said, but we haven't got a building. And um, I've always had the uh, respect to ring up journalists, irrespective of they had comments to provide or not. So I rang up a journalist whose name is Guy Stainer, and he now reads the news in Tasmania and a big supporter. And Guy said, Rob, don't worry about um, finding an office building. We can shoot it in the ABC headquarters in South Bank because it's undergoing renovations. So I was on the news that night. And the next day I was on Neil Mitchell, which is a talkback radio mm. host. And I got a range of conversation from uh, people from very wealthy families that contacted me all the way through to a homeless guy that found me on LinkedIn and said, I'm one of the great unwashed. Thank you for trying and everything in between. Mm. And they all basically said the same thing, Peter. We know we've got a problem. Just tell us what you want us to do. And one of those people that contacted me was on the board of Casper Care. And Casper Care is a not-for-profit, um, and they've just built new accommodation for, for aged, the aged care. But the old one of 52 rooms was lying empty for two years. And um, this uh, friend uh, named David Gorman said, Rob, I feel guilty that this, uh, this existing aged care facility is sitting empty. Can you use this for your pop-up shelter? Cutting a long story short, we work with the City of Port Phillip, Casper Care, the YWCA. We negotiated, because this is before Housing All Australians was formed, we negotiated with um, the, the private sector to refurbish all that 32 rooms out of 52 for free. And the YWCA managed homeless women through there. And in three years, Peter, over 106 women have stabilised their lives in that facility. They've now signed another five-year lease at Peppercorn and Hanson Yunkin, the builder, are going to go back there and do the 20 rooms that remain for free. And they started work on that last week. We've done one in Box Hill, again, Metricon, big supporter of ours, and we're doing things in Perth, Adelaide and Tassie. This, there's thousands of empty buildings mm. that can be used for short-term shelter. They are not a solution but they are private sector response to a crisis. Sure. That's a fantastic story and great great results from, from what you've just gone through. What are the um, challenges with that? I mean, sometimes people might, I guess, prematurely write that off by saying, oh, look, there's issues around, you know, um, cultural safety or, or safety for women and children or, or a whole range of different factors that, that might make it all too hard. What do you have to say in response to those things, like the risks with this? Look, in life, we all have risks. And in fact, a developer's job is to mitigate risks, but risk can be mitigated. But the other option, Peter, is what? Do you do nothing? Do you, do you let them sleep out on the street and, and yeah. have all these unintended consequences? But um, I think these things are there for us to challenge, which is why the innovation, yes, there are always reasons why you can't do something, but I'd rather work around the reasons why you can do something. Absolutely. Those risks are still there when people are probably greater when they're sleeping out with no um, shelter um, at all. So um, also, I guess you've, um, I was going to just refer to some work you did at 6102 Little Burke Street. Another great example, isn't it, of how organisations can get together and collect uh, millions of dollars in paint, linen, furnishing from big firms, things that 
uh, parting with cash can be hard, but parting with uh, products or in kind can be um, as equally an effective way of looking at, at solutions. It's how do you create better value, really. Cash is important, but it's not the be all and end all. You can get like-minded people getting together, like like you mentioned, the team we had was Kane Construction, Cox Architecture, Bonacci, Winwood, a whole A-team of consultants in this industry mm. that said, let us group together and let's offer this service to actually help vulnerable Australians. It is not a solution because philanthropically, we can't solve all the problems, but we can show the private sector does care. They just never had a way to actually do it. My colleague, Alice Clark, recently uh, did an interview on in Daily uh, in Adelaide talking about the housing emergency there and just the sheer numbers of people that, that need temporary accommodation. And I guess our... Um, our efforts are usually trying to get more social and affordable housing built, which um, which will take time. And uh, we'll be talking shortly about mechanisms for that from your perspective. But how important right now do you think in Australia's current circumstances, what's your read, I guess, of the role that short-term temporary shelter will need to play until we can get that right? Look, if, if let's say we acknowledged the size of the problem today. To, do, to, to bring to the market additional housing will take five years. That's if we decide today, and we're not going to decide today as a country. I know the Albanese government's got some ideas about the 10000 through this $10 billion housing fund, but it's not going to get us the volume we need if we're going to mitigate these long-term costs. Mm -hmm. So temporary accommodation to bring people off the streets and just give them some shelter, I think, will have a very important part to play. As long as we don't... Um, get locked up in all the risks because then we do nothing yeah we, yeah. we do nothing and there is that that sort of brokered solution in some respects about what makes sense what passes the pub test because ultimately yes we've got not-for-profit board that taking um a very extreme views on minimizing risk but as human beings everyone gets the fact that without shelter we go into primal instinct modes and, and, and we become different people. And in fact, the show that Filthy Rich and Homeless, what, what that showed to me is even prominent people put into the invisible space of being homeless suffer mental problems as a result. Mm. They didn't have them when they got there. It's a result of being in that position. So my view is we have to be more empathetic and understand that it's a sliding door moment that most of us sometimes go through between homelessness and being productive citizens. And that's something we have to be very mindful as Australians. Absolutely. Let's talk about that empathy and understanding and, and, that, and, those, and that door that you mentioned. You said uh, when you found out that women over the age of 55 were the fastest growing cohort of homelessness in Australia, you said that as a man, you felt ashamed. That obviously had a very profound impact on you. And it's also led to some other initiatives that you've been behind. Can you tell us a bit about that project you did undercover and, and how that started? Yeah, look, undercover is a documentary that's going to be released um, in August this year, it's part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. I can now say publicly that Margot Robbie is the narrator of that film. Wow. So the good thing about that is that more people will see it than if she wasn't. And what it describes is the lives of um, several women being homeless in this country. And I haven't seen the film, so I'm not exactly sure how I'm portrayed, but initially in the, in the trailers, it's about the private sector providing these people some hope that we do care and we're out to try and change the system. Mm. Because one of the things that came out from me from the Lake House, which you mentioned earlier, 
And uh, in fact, I remember when they were shooting some of the trailers that one of the ladies came up to me and said, can I give you a hug? And she probably hadn't been hugged, I'm not sure for how many years, because she just didn't want to let go. And she said that you provide us hope that people actually care. Because when you're in that depressed state of mind, you'll get so black that you think no one cares. And that's where people do silly things. We have to show that people do care and we are willing to help others. And through that, I think we create a better country. And, and that's what the Australian values to me are all about. Yeah, that's very special. That was uh, That's a really special moment there. It, it says a lot, doesn't it, around values and empathy. Um, look, just before we move off that, we do have a, a wonderful um, dry season up here at the moment, Rob. And if you can get Margot Robbie to come up to the decky to do a premiere for a Darwin audience, I'd love to meet her. So um, that's one for you to think about afterwards. I've got no control on that, so... Uh... Yeah, no, I thought you'd say that. That's okay. So let's, let's turn to... Um, getting uh, some progress on social affordable housing then. And you said that um, you've just re released this report called Give Me Shelter, which uh, SGS Economics partnered with you and a, and a whole range of your um, supporting organisations. Um, you said also that um, government is uh, slow to, to adopt anything and leadership needs to come from the private sector. There's around a $290 billion cost um, of, and that's just too expensive for government, you say, and needs to be led by the private sector. It is a big price tag. After the Second World War, the Menzies government really made social housing an absolute priority. You know, when we were decimated with, uh, with the Second World War, um, had no, nowhere near enough housing. What is it different now, I guess, why we can't seem to get that federal government leadership to get this done? And, and especially when you point out in, in, in that report that the benefits and costs you know it's a it's a cost benefit ratio of two to one it, it should make economic sense to go ahead and, and make this investment and to save the 25 billion dollars a year that that's been um, from 2051 that's going to start to kick in if we don't do this why is it so hard to get on i mean we could do things like snowy mountains and we can do other big infrastructure projects like mbn why can't we do this um, I'll, I'll just cut to the chase with this with what two different ministers, I'm not going to name them, said to me on a one-to-one -one meeting. I said, Rob, until the voters start demanding this, we're just going to pay lip service to it. Now, all that does, and again, I'm not saying all politicians are the same, but it does put it in the category that we can't afford to wait for government if what they're after is vote-winning exercises. So, and why I say it's the private sector is that you know, in an ideal world, I would love the government to build all of them because it is definitely the cheapest cost. But as the mythic review done by Chris Leptos said, they've quantified it through the federal government actuaries as a $290 billion issue. And I'm saying that is now economic infrastructure for a country. If the government cannot afford to fund it, we cannot afford not to fund it. Mm. And, and why the private sector? Well, at that sort of capital, our super funds have it. Yep. And currently, our financial system effectively forces our super funds to invest billions housing Americans and effectively zero in Australia. And as soon as I say that to people, they are outraged. I said, do not blame the super funds. They are just responding to the financial system in this country. They want to invest in Australia, but they are not a charity. Mm. Part of what the report suggests is that just top up the uneconomic bit, make it economically viable so they get a reasonable return for risks and the funds will start flowing back here. 
And, and just I want to make a point on the economic study because we've very, very deliberately drawn the line underneath funding solutions. And you might have noticed on the economists that have been listed in that report that were being consulted in terms of the methodology and also the unintended consequences if we as human beings do not have shelter. And they're both left-leaning and right-leaning economists, mm. and they have all agreed. But if you drill down one layer below, the left-leaning say government should build it, the right-leaning say private sector should build it, and to be quite frank, I don't particularly care who builds it. Mm. But let's quantify the size of the problem and then work out a strategy to try and solve it. It does seem to be the case that if, like a lot of things in life, whether it be climate change or other big challenges that we have, the, the, the longer we delay this, the more we're shifting costs onto future generations of Australians. Well, the real, the real thing that keeps me up at night, and let's take that $25 billion per annum number that's going to be reached. So it accumulates up until 2051. With all the other um, demands off government, my real concern is that come that time, Governments of the day will not be able to afford to provide those wraparound services that actually help people. And what's the consequence? Our Australian values get watered down. In my view, we are heading for a lose-lose scenario that's going to leave an economic and social time bomb to our grandchildren and their descendants. And once you learn what you didn't know, I think people become compelled to try and help solve the problem. And that is what we're trying to do at Housing All Australians. Yeah, I mean, I don't think many Australians, if they really did at a, at a fairly, um, I guess, deep level, understand that we're blowing their money at a rate of, what, $25 billion a year um, because we're not doing something that needs to be done, even though they can't put a, a finger on it like they can maybe a road they can drive, which is less cost to cost-effective to build, um, still, you know, it's a waste of taxpayers' money, essentially, is what we're seeing. I mean, we we build train lines, we build roads, we build other infrastructure um, when the benefits outweigh the costs, and this seems to be another one of those examples we should do. It is an economic no-brainer, and in the report, I've specifically asked for the inclusions of other major infrastructure projects purely as a comparison. And just to be very clear, we're not suggesting you shouldn't build roads, hospitals and schools. We're just putting there the bang for your buck in terms of investing is housing as a mitigant to long-term societal costs. Mm -hmm. So it's purely a comparison. And if you look at some of the states, and Victoria is probably the one that has the, one of the highest cost-benefit ratios of 3.3 to 1. It means we could invest in housing and save both federal and state taxpayer costs. Mm, and to true. me, that's what infrastructure is meant to do. When um, Infrastructure Australia first put housing as a uh, key social and economic infrastructure in its audit and then in its plan, um, how did you react to that? Do you think, and what what that what might that lead to down the track from here? Look, I, I, I'm hoping, hopefully, by some of our advocacy and, and learning, is that the Infrastructure of Australia and Infrastructure Victoria has done the same thing. Uh, social affordable housing, I think, was their number three uh, priority from the public feedback. We have to put this on the infrastructure agenda. And just a little anecdotal story. When I started this journey and I'm talking to the super funds, they got me to speak to their property people. And I said, no, 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 this is not property. This is infrastructure. I'll go and talk to those guys. So the semantics around these words is important to get the right people to engage. And the not-for-profits, as I've said to them, stop talking about social justice. We get it. 
but Treasury wants to hear about it in economic terms. Talk about the economic business case. Yeah. Same issue, just different language. Yeah, absolutely. I think once the narrative gets some momentum and we start looking at, you know, mitigates for long-term cost of our country, I'm hopeful the discussion will change. Absolutely. And um, just out of interest, you've got, uh, as I said before, you've got some very significant partners on board, such as PricewaterhouseCoopers, AV Jennings, Bendigo Bank, the Committee for Melbourne, Seabus Property, Minter Ellison, Stockland, and the Salvation Army. What are, what, 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 what's their interest in this? Why, why would they get behind this? Is it leadership or is there something else going on there? Uh, look, I think it boils down to one very simple fundamental fact. They are all people. And when you sit down with them and explain what is happening that they didn't know beforehand, at the end of every conversation, it normally ends up in a similar pattern like this. Rob, tell me what we can do to help you. Everyone gets it. Everyone knows that without shelter, we, we expose ourselves to our primal needs and we go back into survival mode. Mm. Everyone gets it, but they've got a day job. We've got to be respectful of that. Mm. And everyone's got a part to play in society, whether you're a, a Stockland or a Dualux or a Quest or a CHP. And we have to do that well. But at the end of the day, we're all doing it so society is better off. And once we realise unintended consequences, we have a duty, I believe, once we learn about those, to look at how we change that by educating people about what they don't know. And if you had to sum up what we're doing in one marketing term, our objective is to create respectful unrest by educating the Australian public and business about what they don't know in terms of housing and it's linked to homelessness. Because without respectful unrest, there will never be any political self-interest. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And I think that a thing too um, is that we've got some amazing companies up here in the Northern Territory. It's very different from Victoria in terms of size and scale, but we've got some very uh, successful businesses and leading businesses. I guess what, what I'm learning from this conversation is we've got to maybe rethink how do we approach those organisations, cognizant of the fact they're busy, they're trying to, trying to make a dollar that's increasingly harder these days. They've got businesses to run and time's precious. So I guess how can they um, buy into this? And instead of going and asking for cash to sponsor something, a study, it's really, I guess, about having respectful engagement and seeing that what sort of different ways they can make a, a, um, a contribution to issues that are very much on their own doorstep, whether it be rough sleeping or antisocial behaviour or a lack of shelter for uh, or affordable housing, as it were. I'm sure that... Um, chance to have those conversations and think a bit more creatively around how we can engage those leaders is still very possible up here. Oh, I think it's very, very possible. In fact, uh, we, we are now in every state and territory except Northern Territory. Right. And Peter, it's a mission of mine to actually establish housing all Australians in the Northern Territory. So if there are any of your listeners that are in the private sector and want to learn more about what is needed to establish housing all Australians in Northern Territory, please get them to reach out. There's an email address on our, our webpage and I'm very happy to respond because we all know it, we all see it. We sometimes feel it's overwhelming and too big to solve. Yeah. But as I said to a group of developers when I was a keynote speaker during a picture partner's breakfast, when I learned that women over 50 were the fastest growing kind of homeless in this country, and when I learned that our super funds have invested billions housing Americans and basically not much in Australia, I said to myself, you got two points. One is that, damn it, government should do more about it. Or maybe 
maybe I should try and do something about it. And maybe, maybe there are some people like me in business that think the same way. I've got to tell you, I'm overwhelmed with business leaders saying, how can we help you? We've got a national housing crisis. We see homelessness. And remember, homelessness is the canary in the coal mine to a much broader issue in our whole housing continuum, which is now seeing our kids finding it very, very difficult to even aspire to own a home. Mm -hmm. So what society are we leaving the future? Well, one that we need to change and the organisations that support us want to have a national conversation around housing all Australians as an economic platform for a prosperous country. And Rob, I think the other element to that, and we've spoken a bit about the social and affordable end, but it's far broader than that, housing all Australians. And when you've talked also about population growth, let me just give an example. In the Northern Territory, the intention is to grow to a $40 billion economy by 2030, if possible, and estimated population rise from 250,000 to in the order of 300,000. They're very significant numbers uh, across the regions where we're lacking uh, some key infrastructure such as roads and, and, and the like, or, or surface roads potentially. But I guess the, the, um, the question is, where are we going to house our key workers? Business wants to grow, whether they're in tourism, whether they're in uh, industry or hospitality or, or education or whatever it is, um, you simply can't get workers uh, if you can't house them or if you're housing them further and further away from where their place of work is. That's what, you, that's what you're seeing as well? Absolutely. We're, we're hearing all these anecdotal stories about how businesses now have to, the businesses that can afford it, have to invest in accommodation to attract the workers. And, and I honestly believe we've got to get back to basics. When I say basics, let's take a very simple example. If you're starting a new mine in Western Australia, the Northern Territory, what's the first thing you do? Provide shelter. Because without that, you don't get your workers. So it is a fundamental premise of business. If you go back over a century, um, industry was actually formed around housing for its workers. Um, and because the car sort of made it a much more democratic way of getting around, we're pushing ourselves further and further out. But if you start to price all the externalities, yeah. uh, fossil fuel, greenhouse gases, time, we start to realise that that's actually an unfunded cost. And once we start to price all those into our um, the way we live society, the decisions may be very, very different, which is why our economic, economic report has started to price in health costs, justice costs, the, the lack of productivity because people are working further away from where they work and preparing a business case to say, let's get back to basics. There's a strong and aligned business case of housing all Australians. Let's put that as a number one priority. Because if you really think about it, Peter, if we wanted to get the productive nature of our country fully occupied, or at least the propensity, housing people is an important way to do it. Otherwise, they might become welfare dependents rather than contributors to society. And it has to be, and it is, that basic. And I think in our case, in the Territory as well, uh, it's flying fly-out operations if we can't provide housing close to the employment source, which isn't what we're wanting to see either in terms of income going out of the Territory and, and instead of staying in the Territory and growing local employment opportunities. Um, 
So what happens from here in terms of the work that's been done on Give Me Shelter? It's, it's quite a compelling case that, um, that there's a role, a, a significant role for business to lead. Uh, there's a clear demand and, and benefits of doing this. And you've mentioned before that superannuation funds are investing. You know, there's a lot of money, obviously, in superannuation. Uh, some of it is leaking overseas to the US, which is um, which always does um, surprise people, I think, when they hear that for the first time, as you've noted. What happens from here and how do we how do we get, I guess, an investable product? Or what happens next with the work under Give Me Shelter? Well, the first thing we're doing on the 2nd of August, we've got a webinar that's hosted by the Committee for Melbourne, which is a national webinar, where we'll unpack the report to an audience and they can start to ask the questions and learn a bit more about it. So the first thing I suggest is get people to go on our housingallaustralians.org.au website and not only download the report, but also book in for the webinar. That's the 2nd of August. At some point between the 2nd of August and 12 months' time, what we would like to do is to create a business-led discussion around quantifying and, and sharing the, the um, work that Chris Leptos did for the NIFIC review about the quantum of this issue and the scale of future, the time period's 30 years. Once business recognises that, let's get some set of standard principles because as business wants to operate nationally, we don't want eight sets of different rules. We want one set of national principles which we can then apply. Post that discussion with business, we'll then break it down to the states because the states are responsible for housing delivery. And it's important that the federal government is engaged in this, whichever persuasion, because while both the opposition and the government time during the election campaign put up alternatives for home ownership, which stoke demand, which means an upward pressure on pricing, they do not control the supply. The supply of housing is a state-related issue. So we have to have collaboration between the federal government, the state government and local government and the private sector to work out what is the best long-term solution. It has to be a solution that's bipartisan and sits outside of election cycles so that when a new government is brought into power, we don't have the rules change again because we cannot afford that. Yeah. And Rob, when we do get to the point where we're ready to start building more homes at scale across Australia, uh, and as you said, I, I don't particularly care where the, where the financing for that comes as long as we're getting the houses built. Um, so I guess in terms of the, uh, the sectors across the building and industry and, and industry and business generally across Australia, do you think we've got a level of vision as to what that's going to look like? Because I know having come from property, we're going to want to... There's a lot. There can be stigma around public housing, social housing. It's been done very poorly in, in at times, uh, or probably for most of the time, for that matter. Do you think we've got the level of capacity across the sector to build the kind of communities uh, that have the amenity, have the vibrancy, and rethink the way that we we build for the housing that all Australians need? Yeah. Look, I th I think we do, but it, we have to acknowledge this is a cultural shift for the Australian psyche because originally all the public houses that we had built especially in Melbourne, I'm sure Sydney would be the same, was actually key worker housing. That's, that's the original inception of the public housing, was for key workers. And over the period of decades, it's turned into housing for the unemployed. And there's a perception that gets created over a period of time. So I think we've got to go through a cultural shift as well. The UK and in Europe, social housing is part of their environment. It's actually good to have this mix of people. But here we've got a stigma. 
and rightly or wrongly, the public have this stigma. Mm. We have to move sensitively and slowly change that perception by integrating and doing um, world's best practice. And without going to some of the details, the, there's an um, international exhibition happening in Europe. It's been happening for 30 odd years called the IBA, where they incubate demonstration projects. One of our ideas is to talk to the federal government about setting up IBA Australia as a federal government led initiative about demonstration projects working with the states. I'm on what we call IBA Melbourne, which is set up by Melbourne University incubator of the state government of Victoria. I'm on the board there. And it's the first IBA outside of Europe. But you need a federal IBA to work as a country so we can start doing demonstration projects in each state and territory about housing and creating new communities. Wonderful. And Rob, a final question I'd really like to um, check in with you on, and I'll just premise it by, I guess, saying that, you know, we've got the Brisbane Olympics coming up in a few years' time. A lot of the regions are wanting to grow. There's housing and other construction um, pipelines to fill. So labour availability is going to be a challenge uh, for most, for many states and territories, I would imagine. Uh, so just in terms of, you know, if you were talking to, a, I guess, a young 18-year-old, uh, Robert Pradelin, who's thinking about making a career in um, in housing and construction or property sector, what would you say to him in 2022 in terms of that as a career? Well, what I'll be saying to either him or her, um, look, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed my career in the building industry. I think I don't, actually, in fact, I should say, I feel like I haven't actually worked many days in my life because I've actually enjoyed the things that I'm doing. So if we are going to set this country up for the future, Building more homes is going to be part of that fundamental infrastructure. I think it's got a long way to go for the future, but we have to start to be a little bit innovative too, because if we are, once we start overlapping and putting the demand for social affordable housing on top of the private sector, sometimes the actual demand for skills and labour exceeds the industry's capacity to deliver, which means upward pressure on costs. So we have to look at prefabbing as a way to supplement that supply but not overshooting the skills base. Because the last thing anybody wants is uh, more demand than supply, because this is what's happened with our land prices, and prices shoot through the roof because it's a shortage. We have to make sure we're innovative in our construction techniques to keep the construction prices low, but also about land supply. Because if you dissect building costs versus land, the escalation basically happened in the land price because we've limited its supply, in my view. Rob, it's been, uh, it's been fascinating uh, having this conversation with you and sharing the couch today. I, I think it's really refreshing to hear people from business, uh, from industry, who have the capacity to make a contribution here to an issue that's too often characterised as a welfare issue um, when clearly it is a lot more than that and um, I think it's personally I think uh, it's exciting that we're talking about housing as key economic infrastructure because it does remind people that there's an economic case to doing this and there's an economic penalty if we don't so it's been an absolute pleasure listening to those perspectives and uh, look all the best with um, housing all Australians and all the other uh, great work you're doing um, and thank you for joining the program today. It is a pleasure, Peter, and thank you once again for asking.
Thanks. You've been uh, watching and listening to Robert Pradelin, who's the Executive Director of Quipex, and he's also the founding board member of Housing All Australians, talking about the really interesting and exciting work that Rob's doing after a long career in, in the property industry, coming into uh, areas where he can make a real difference to Housing All Australians. So if you want to um, uh, check out our other podcasts, again, please check out the NT Shelter YouTube channel. And um, follow the other cast, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out. And for now, thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to episode nine of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe. <laughs>